morning. You can turn to Psalm chapter 113, is where we'll be today, Psalm 113. My name is Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. I will definitely be giving Matt a hard time for inviting me to come speak on the week that the AC breaks. Well, I'm grateful to have you guys here today. I'm, I'm, I think it's ironic that we're going to talk about worship today, because worship is something that God has called us to do at all times, even when it's not convenient even when it's not comfortable. And it seems like he wanted to go ahead and give us an object lesson today. And so he's allowing us to be hot in here, partly to help us to see what really matters in life and to remind us that for most of the church throughout its history, they didn't have AC. They still gathered together to worship the Lord because it's always time to worship and it's always appropriate to worship. So We're going to look at Psalm 113 today. I want to start by praying and asking God to help us to focus and learn the lessons that he has for us. Lord, we praise you that you are merciful, that you are faithful, that you are worthy of our worship. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would descend upon us and fill us and give us insight into your word. We pray that you would remove distractions, including the heat in this room, that you would Allow us to be able to focus on your word and hear your voice to us this morning. We pray that our lives and our worship would please you. And we do, Lord, want to take this moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are worshiping in far more difficult situations this morning, Lord, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of imprisonment. We pray, Lord, for them, for those who are persecuted for worshiping you, that you would be with them and that you would help us to remember them. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 113. We don't actually know who wrote Psalm 113. We know that it was written for community worship. It was when the Israelites gathered together for their annual festivals and celebrations. They would sing or say this psalm to one another. So let's read it, just the beginning of it though. We'll start in chapter 1. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Now it's interesting, in English, the first line, praise the Lord, that's three words. In Hebrew, it's one. It's a word that you might have heard at church before, but never known what it means. Hallelujah. We sing it sometimes in songs, and um, some people will say it when they're like really excited about something. Hallelujah. But what does the word actually mean? In Hebrew, it's a very significant word that's a, a union of two significant Hebrew words. It's the combination of the verb halal and the name Yah. And, and so let me explain both of these to you so you'll know what you're saying if you ever say hallelujah. We'll start with the name, Yah. It's Yahweh. It's an abbreviation of God's own personal name, the name of the God of the Bible. And If you know the story, you might remember Moses was sent by God to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from slavery. But Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? Because there's a lot of different ideas about God out in the world. Which God are you? And so God gave him this name, Yahweh, but it's a very unusual name. It's not like Blake or Steve or the names of other ancient gods like Zeus or Baal. It's not a proper name at all. It's actually a Hebrew verb. It means I am. In other words, there, there was no regular name that could label our God. He's way too big for that. He's way too great for a common name. And so he chose the verb I am. Who sent you? I am. The God who is in contrast to all others. 
So Yahweh is the personal name of God. That's the end of the word hallelujah. The beginning is the verb halal, which means to praise or to boast about someone. And sometimes it's used of boasting about people, but usually it's used of boasting about God, about the God that we worship. So halal is to praise or boast about your God, and particularly to boast about all the good things he's done in your life, or to boast about how great he is, how good he is. It's any time that you are saying something that lifts up God, that that praises him. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, halal or praise is expressed in a lot of different ways. It's not just singing. It's also speaking. It's writing. It's, it's memorizing poetry. It's even dancing in song. There's lots of different ways that the Jews express halal or praise to God in the Bible. So when we talk about halal and Yahweh, hallelujah, we're talking about praising God or what in English we tend to call worship. That's the idea this morning, worship. Now, what is worship? Now, for most of us, when we hear the word worship, what do we think of? What we were doing like five minutes ago. Singing on Sunday morning at church. And that is part of worship, but it's not all of worship. Worship is actually much, much bigger than that. And you can see that if you'll look again at verse 3 that we read. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised or worshiped. From the rising of the sun to its setting, what God is telling you is that worship is not just for church one day a week for like 30 minutes. The worship is from sunrise to sunset every day. It is a constant activity of life. And so I need to give you a broader definition than just singing songs on Sunday morning. So biblical worship, what is it? It's this. It's declaring the goodness and greatness of God to him, to ourselves, or to others. Declaring the goodness and greatness of God. That can be in speech. It can be in thought. It can be in song. It can be in writing. It can be in movement. It's anything that you do to declare to God, to yourself, or to others how good and how great God is to you. So a few examples for you. Let's say that you're at work tomorrow morning and you remember a friend who lost his or her job and all of a sudden you feel really grateful that you still have a job and you just whisper to God, thank you God that I have this job. That was worship because you were saying thank you to God for something that he's kindly given you. Anytime you say thanks to God and mean it, that's worship. It's worship if you're driving home tonight and you see the sunset and and you feel just in awe of how beautiful it is and you say to God, wow, that's gorgeous. That was worship. It's worship when you write in your prayer journal about times that God has answered your prayers. It's worship when you tell a classmate or a coworker about how much peace you have because of Jesus. It's worship when you go to an Aggie football game this fall and they're winning because they always do and it's between plays and you look around and see everybody having so much fun and it dawns on you how lucky you are because for most of human history people were just trying not to die today and here you are enjoying all of this spectacle and you say to God, thanks, that was worship. So worship is anything you do to declare the goodness and greatness of God to God, to yourself, or to others. And it's supposed to be a 24-7 part of life, a, a constant thing that we are doing and thinking and saying. And so God has given us this psalm, Psalm 113, to help us to worship him 24-7 to help us to worship him from the rising of the sun to its setting. And, and in particular, Psalm 113 gives us two things. First of all, it's going to give us prerequisites 
to worship? What has to be true first for our worship to count? Second, it's going to give us inspiration for worship to motivate us. So let's jump right in to the prerequisites for worship. So worship, prerequisites to worship. So you know what a prerequisite is. If you wanted to take an upper-level math class for some odd reason, you would have to take lower-level math classes first to be able to get in. Or if you want to drive a car, you you have to get a driver's license first. It's a prerequisite. It's non-negotiable. You got to do it. So these are prerequisites to worship. There's two of them that are mentioned in this psalm. They have to be true first in your life for your worship to count. Now, let's be clear. You can come here to church and sing the songs that are on the screens. No one is going to stop you from doing that. But if these two prerequisites are not true first in your life, then all your singing is simply hot air. It's just noise. It's not honoring God at all. It doesn't count for anything unless these two prerequisites are true first. So first prerequisite to worship that honors God is submission. And you see that right at the beginning. Look how it starts. Praise the Lord. That is hallelujah. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Servants is an unfortunate English translation because it makes us think of the people on BBC's Downton Abbey who work like downstairs and they get a paycheck and and they didn't have the most awesome lives, but they still had decent lives and they could choose to work there or quit. That's not what's in view here. In Hebrew, it's a slave. So praise the Lord, O slaves of the Lord. And the psalm begins by reminding us that we do not belong to ourselves. We are owned. God owns us. We, we are slaves of God. He is our master. We are his servants, his slaves. So the psalm begins by reminding us that we are his slaves because worship requires submission to To worship God in a way that honors him, you must kneel before him and recognize that he is God and you are not. You're not equals. You're not getting to call the shots here. He is master, you are slave. So often in the Bible, worship begins with an explicit recognition of our status, that he is master, he is king, we are slaves. Often, in fact, biblical worship begins with a posture of submission. The Israelites were often told to approach God and worship on their knees. Here's one of the more famous passages, Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. They were actually being called to kneel in worship. That was the most frequent posture of worship in the Bible. If you look at all the great men and women of faith in Scripture, when they approach God in worship, whether you're talking about Abraham or Moses or David or John or Peter, they're always on their knees. They're always bowing. They're not standing. They're not sitting. They're, they're down low because worship begins with submission. And so it's a good moment for us to talk just briefly about our posture in worship. Now today is odd. <laughs> we all sat down, most of us, because we're just hot. Let's think about in general, though. When we're here and we're worshiping, we're a very academic Bible church. And so we tend, on average, not all of us, but many of us, tend to not be very expressive in worship. Some of that is because of baggage from denominational history. Some of that is because we misunderstand the purposes of our bodies in worship. For a lot of us, we assume that the purpose of our body in worship is to express ourselves. And so if we feel that God is great and we're excited about him, then maybe we'll raise our hands to show that. Or if we feel very humble before God, maybe we'll bow down on our knees to show that. But if we're not feeling that, then we shouldn't do it because it would be hypocritical. But that's not accurate. That's a misunderstanding of why God gave you a body. 
The purpose of your body in worship is not just to express your emotions, it's to direct your emotions. Your body is a tool. God gave it to you as a tool to direct your heart and your mind to to think the right things and feel the right things. How do I know that? Because God never says to the Israelites, kneel if you're feeling it. No, it's, it's always kneel, and then you will feel it. Because your body is a tool that directs your heart and mind to feel the right things about God. And so in the coming semester, throughout the next few months, we as, as a teaching pastors here at Grace, we're going to be challenging you to be more involved with your body in worship. We're going to direct you when we're singing about God being magnificent. We're going to direct you to actually raise your hands. It won't matter whether you feel like it. We do it because the act of raising our hands, we're using our body to direct our souls towards God. If we're singing about turning our lives over to God, we'll challenge you to actually hold your hands out, palm up open, to act out what you're saying to God with your body. If we're singing about us being slaves of God, Him being master, we'll challenge you to actually, right here in the auditorium, get on your knees and bow before God to show your soul and your mind to think the right things, to submit before God. Now, what if the people around you look at you weird? Well, that is a clear indication of their immaturity, not yours, because all of the great men and women of the Bible worshiped on their knees. And so we're going to challenge you to do that actively throughout this semester, to use your body as a tool that helps direct your heart and your mind to feel and think the right things about God. Your body is a tool. Your body is a tool that helps you to submit. Now, obviously, what God cares about most is the actual submission. The rule of thumb, as you look scripturally, is that you cannot worship God and rebel against God at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive. It is impossible to do that. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I had really one other kid in school who I would have called an enemy. Now, kids fight and argue all the time, but there was one kid who was just truly cruel to me, and usually he was cruel behind my back. That was the ironic thing. He'd say nice things to my face, and then he'd stab me in the back later, and one day that literally came true. We were out at recess. I think it was like around fifth or sixth grade, and all the other kids are going inside, and he calls me over to the side of the building, and, and he said something really nice about me, and, and I felt like, wow, surprised. Maybe he's burying the hatchet, and then I turn around to go inside, and he grabs me and knees me in the kidney, knocked the breath out of me, and I recognized in that moment, your kind words have been invalidated by your cruel actions. And yet that's exactly what we're doing to God when we say nice things about God on Sunday and then rebel against him the rest of the week. You you cannot worship God and rebel against him at the same time. What that means is you cannot accept sin in your life. Now, all of us are going to sin. We all are imperfect people. But if you choose to live with that sin and excuse that sin and say, hey, I deserve this area of sin in my life. It's private. It's mine. I get to have it. I'm not going to turn it over to the Lord. Then that invalidates your worship. You're not singing honorable worship to God. Your actions betray your heart of rebellion. So what that means is that throughout the week, even when you do stumble in sin, you need to confess that to God. You need to turn back to God. You need to commit to walk with God as best you can in the power of His Spirit for your worship to count. Biblical worship requires submission. That is the first prerequisite of it. That's why throughout the Bible, this is what it looked like when God's people worshiped. Always on their knees or their faces, recognizing 
God is God and we are not. Second prerequisite to biblical worship, knowledge. You cannot worship what you do not know. That's why throughout these first three verses, you may have noticed there was a phrase repeated multiple times, praise the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. Names in the ancient world were very different than names today. My name doesn't tell you anything about me. It's five letters, B-L-A-K-E. You can know that word and yet not know anything about me as a person. You only know what you need to say to get my attention. That doesn't count. In the ancient world, names were different. Your name summarized everything that you were and everything that you had done. In fact, many people's names were changed later in life to reflect who they had become. And so when the psalmist says that we need to praise or worship the name of the Lord, he's saying that you need to praise or worship or give thanks for everything God is and everything God's done. You can't do that if you don't know who God is and what he's done. Biblical worship requires knowledge about God. You can't worship what you don't know. And so if you're new to this Christianity thing or you're even just checking it out, how can you grow in knowledge of God? Well, the first thing to do is to start with the source. Go to the Bible and read the book of John in the New Testament is a great first book to read. Second good book to read is Genesis, the very beginning of the story. Read this book to learn about your God. And then once you've read this book and gotten into it, you can go onto our website and download our Bible study called Essentials. And it will walk you through the, the basic truths about who God is and what he's done. If you want to go even further, there's a great author, a man I really enjoy reading, A.W. Tozer, and he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's not really long. It's a wonderful book. Each chapter is about some attribute of God. So just go get Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It will help you get to know your God so that you can worship him. Okay, so we've got our prerequisites. This is what's got to be true first before we can worship. Now, let's get some inspiration. Because here's the reality. Worship is not something we're going to always feel like giving. Because sometimes it's hot in the room, and sometimes we're distracted by all the shiny things that this world offers us, and sometimes we're weighed down by pain or suffering or stress or anxiety. And so worship doesn't always come easy to us, and so God, knowing that and being kind, he's given us these passages throughout the Bible that inspire us to worship him. And that's the second half of chapter 113. It's inspiration for worship, I like to think of it as kindling. If you want to start a fire, which is like the last thing from your minds right now, if you want to start a fire, let's say you're going to make s'mores, you know, you can't start with just a big log of oak. You're never going to get that to light unless you like soak it overnight in gasoline. You, you got to start with kindling with some leaves and twigs and little branches. You start that fire first, and when it gets hot and builds up some coals, then you can add the oak. Well, Psalm 113 is kindling for worship. It's designed to start that fire in your soul that will build up into worship, that will inspire you to praise God. And so let's look at this kindling for worship. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? The first inspiration we receive for worship is God's greatness. He is enthroned on high, meaning he is sovereign over all nations. Every nation, every politician on earth is ultimately within the hands of God. He's sovereign over all things on earth. He is enthroned above the heavens. His glory transcends the heavens. Heavens in Hebrew is just a Hebraic way of talking about the universe. So the idea is that God is enthroned or glorious 
above the universe. And that's easy to say, but you've got to pause for a moment and think about what that means. I'll, I'll try to illustrate it for you. If, if you go out to um, the backyard, your backyard at night, assuming you live in the country, not kind of in the city, but if you go out in your backyard and you look up tonight, you might see that. That's quite a few stars. kind of hard to see there on that screen, but you get a sense there's quite a few stars there in your backyard. And, and you look up and you decide, I'm just going to focus on one tiny bit of the sky. So you narrow your vision to that little tiny square that I just made. And you're looking in that little tiny square. And when I looked at that image on my computer, I was able to see three points of light in that little square. And I thought, wow, that's I mean, that's a tiny square, and there's three stars there. But then let's say that somebody loaned you the keys of the Hubble Space Telescope, and you got to point it at that square. And so you point it at that square, and you look at the screen, and you'll see this. And that tiny little square are 10,000 galaxies and five quadrillion stars. And that is one itty-bitty tiny square of the night sky. That's nothing compared to all that the universe is, and yet God's glory transcends it all. He stands above all of that. He holds all of it in his hands. The point is God is infinitely great. His greatness and majesty are far beyond anything you can fathom. Okay, so God is great beyond anything we can imagine. But he's not just great. Look where the psalm goes next. Verse 6. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes a barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Not only is God great, but God is compassionate. That's where the psalmist goes next. He talks about God humbling himself. That word in Hebrew, it means to humiliate yourself, to lower yourself, to abase yourself. So the idea is God who transcends the universe, he humiliates himself by stooping down to be among two very needy groups of people. So the the psalmist, he mentions two very needy groups. The first are the poor who live in, in the ash heap or the dust heap. That would be the garbage piles of the ancient world. And and the key here to know how it worked in the ancient world Their garbage dump contained everything you throw in the trash plus everything you flush down the toilet. Everything went there. Now, why would anyone want to live on a garbage pile of trash and human waste? The reason was because it was lit on fire all the time, constantly burned. And so that's how they'd stay warm and not freeze at night in the mountainous areas around Jerusalem. They also would find their food there. So they'd eat whatever scraps they could find. So it's the poorest of the poor. It's, it's, you're talking about people who are walking corpses, covered in filth and disease. And yet God, the God who transcends the universe, stoops down and walks among them and reaches out and embraces them and lifts them up. The second really needy group that's mentioned is the barren woman. Now, infertility is hard at any time in human history, but it was especially hard in the ancient world where infertility was viewed as a curse because children were the basis of a woman's worth and security. Her her only worth in the eyes of society was found in her ability to have children and her security. In a world without social security, your children were how you had security in the future. So for a woman not to have children in the ancient world was an absolute curse. She was the lowest of the low, and yet it says that God reaches down and cares about her situation and knows her name and lifts her up and restores her and gives her children. Now, some of you may wonder, well, then why are there still so many poor people and infertile women in our world? And the reason is because the story's not finished yet. The story's still being written. Jesus has not yet returned. He will, and when he does and the story is finished, all of this will be true. 
God will do in the future what he's done so often in the past. He will lift up and restore the poorest of the poor, and he will heal and give hope to the barren. So that is coming. Now, if we look at God in his greatness and in his compassion, each of those facts alone are enough to convince us that God is worthy of our worship. But the truly amazing thing is that our God is both at the same time. My favorite part of Psalm 113 and what I've underlined in my Bible is the last line in verse 5 and the first line in verse 6. Who is enthroned on high who humbles himself to behold? The author is juxtaposing two things that do not seem to human beings to be able to be true at the same time. The person who is the most famous, the most wealthy, the most powerful is not also the same who humiliates himself to live among the most wretched. And yet that's what your God has done. Can you imagine presidents or celebrities or billionaires choosing to live in the waste piles of the third world? Not for a photo op, but every day. And yet that's what your God has done and continues to do. He is both infinitely great and infinitely compassionate. And and that's the glorious paradox of our God that should inspire worship is you don't have to pick between a great God and a compassionate God. You get both at the same time. He is always infinitely great and he is always infinitely compassionate. And so what we're going to do to end our time this morning, we are going to wrap it up a little bit early, but we're going to finish in worship. One last song of worship. We'll we'll keep it short. But we want to have an opportunity to respond to the greatness and the compassion of God in worship. And here's the deal. Now, I know it's it's hot and, and the floor is a little bit hard here. I'm going to invite you, but not call you, but invite you to kneel. I'm going to kneel. I invite you to do the same. If you're not able to, that's fine. Stay in your chair and just bow over. I want us to start this next song in worship. For those of us who can, let's start it on our knees as a recognition of the fact that we are slaves of God who are coming to our master to talk about how great he is. And so just like Israelites have done for thousands of years, just like God's people have done for thousands of years, let's worship on our knees. Alleluia, we say to you, Heavenly Father, we praise you, Yahweh, the great I Am, the creator who has existed forever and will exist forever. You are great in every way. And so we call upon all of creation to worship you for you are worthy. We praise you, our great God, that you are both infinitely great in power and majesty and also at the same time, you are infinitely compassionate and gracious to those in need. We praise you, you are greater than anything we could ever think of as a God. We praise you, Heavenly Father. May you be pleased with us. In Jesus' name.